thank you for tuning in for the first episode of the Cross-Border Interviews Huntington's Awareness Week. I'm Christopher Brown, the host of the show, and today we are sitting down with two amazing guests who will talk about the genetics of Huntington's, predictive testing and diagnostic testing, and research being done today in regards to Huntington's. In today's episode, we talk with Dr. Sukorsky, Professor of Medicine, medical genetics and pediatrics at the University of Alberta, and Linda McLaren, a genetic counselor in Alberta. So please enjoy Cross-Border Interviews Huntington's Awareness Week featuring our medical experts. I want to thank everyone for doing this. Much appreciated. Um, before we get into the uh, meat and bones of the uh, interview, can I just get both of you to uh, say who you are for my listeners and then your job title and how you are connected to Huntington's disease? So starting with Linda or the doctor, either one. Hey, okay, Linda, carry on. <laughs> okay. Uh, my name is Linda McLaren, and I work as a genetic counselor. And um, my uh, connection with the Huntington disease community is uh, primarily through offering what we would call uh, predictive or pre-symptomatic uh, testing for individuals uh, for Huntington disease. Perfect. Uh, I'm Dr. Oksana Sikorsky. I'm a professor of neurology and medical genetics at the University of Alberta. And I, uh, my, sub my specialty is neurogenetics. Uh, so I look after uh, individuals with uh, neurological hereditary disorders. And I've been working with um, individuals and families affected with Huntington's disease uh, for close to 40 years now. Okay, perfect. Thank you very much for that. Um, um, this is going to be a roundtable discussion, but there will be some questions that are pointed to both yourself, Linda, and then yourself, doctor, as well. Um, uh, uh, this one's uh, first for the doctor. Uh, doctor, and I, I, I apologize if I pronounce your name wrong. Uh, I've been trying to practice it all uh, weekend, but Sierkowski? Sikorsky. So I apologize for that. Um, doctor, can you uh, explain uh, the symptoms that uh, a, a patient would typically come into you to see about potentially having the genetic uh, gene that is uh, the genetic HD gene? Yeah. Um, so someone who has a family history of Huntington's, for example, their mother or father is affected, uh, will frequently wonder whether they are developing symptoms. And the symptoms uh, typically come on in later on in life, in midlife, uh, although that's very variable. And the initial symptoms are very subtle. Uh, so they could be something like uh, looking like they're restless or having little fidgety movements, um, which signifies the beginning of chorea. Uh, other symptoms can include some problems with loss of judgment or insight, making the wrong decisions, for example. Other symptoms could be uh, depression or anxiety. Uh, so there's a triad of symptoms that we look at, the neurological, which typically is the chorea, the fidgety restless movements, uh, the psychiatric symptoms, which involves depression and anxiety, and the cognitive 
cognitive symptoms, which is more judgment and insight. But not all three sets of symptoms can occur at the same time. Uh, one can start uh, even in in the same members of the family. Uh, the presentation, the onset of the symptoms can be very different. So the on Onset is very, very gradual, very subtle, but over time, and we're talking terms of years, the symptoms will uh, very gradually progress. So if somebody has those symptoms, um, the way you make a diagnosis is first you have to take a good history and physical examination, examining for all the, all the features that I, that I discussed. Um, and then we want to make sure that it's not other things. For example, if, you, if your thyroid is too high, you can have restless fidgety symptoms and you can have anxiety. Um, if you have strokes in a certain area, you may show some of these uh, symptoms. So the diagnosis involves having the symptoms uh, that would make us suspicious of HD, but at the same time ruling out things like thyroid problems, other uh, say toxic exposures, medications that can cause some of these symptoms, doing a uh, CAT scan or an MRI of the brain to make sure that there's no strokes or other problems. And, and just to clarify, and I just want to make sure I've got this right here, um, a person who comes in to see you to get, uh, or a doctor to get that diagnosis, their symptoms might be different than someone else's, uh, someone else's and their family symptoms who had HD, correct? From that first onset of uh, potentially that fidgetiveness, uh, that might be different, say, from what their father might have gone through. Uh, that's correct at the very beginning, but as the condition progresses, the symptoms are uh, will develop in all three areas. It is important to recognize, though, that the way the clinical diagnosis is made is by having primarily the neurological symptoms, the chorea, because depression and anxiety is common, right? A lot of people suffer from depression and anxiety. So you can't use depression and anxiety to make a diagnosis. You can only use the neurological symptoms as well as making sure, like I mentioned, that there aren't any other issues no. or any other causes for the symptoms. And now, in your medical opinion, do they know why HD usually, and I use say usually because there are many different types of, uh, there's uh, juvenile HD, there's onset uh, HD. Why uh, do Canadians usually see HD symptoms appear at that 34 range, uh, 34 years of age range? Well, first of all, that's not, I would not use the term 34. Okay. Uh, there's a wide, wide variation of onset. And so we see uh, onset in children rarely, but we do see onset in children, teenagers. Uh, we see onset in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. I've seen patients presenting with symptoms in their 70s and 80s and not symptoms. So the average age of onset, when you look at many, many hundreds of people uh, with HD, uh, maybe I would say in the 40s, 
but in each family, there's a large variations. And in part, that depends on the size of the genetic abnormality. Um, but even so, we look at the family. So somebody, we haven't gone into the genetics yet um, in detail, but the average uh, uh, expansion, if it's say 40 repeats in some families, onset may be in the 30s, and in other families, onset will be in the 70s. So we know that the gene associated with HD, the genetic expansion, only accounts for part of the variability seen among families. So different families have other genetic factors that will determine the age of onset. And now let, let's get into that genes and the repetitiveness of the gene. Um, so can you explain the makeup of the HD gene? What, uh, because most people who might be listening to this might not understand what a CAG is, what the repetitive gene is. So from your standpoint, uh, explain it to uh, me as if uh, you were explaining to someone who had just gotten into this, because I've done research, I've tried to understand this. I might not understand it as much as you do, but explain it that <laughs> I, I, I will be the first to admit I will not ever understand it as much as you do, but can you explain it? Can you explain what a repetitive gene is and how the makeup makes that uh, mutated gene? Why, why do we let Linda explain this? Linda, is that okay? Okay. Oh, sure. Yep. So um, first, I would just take one step back a little bit, Chris, just to, to uh, start to say that, you know, uh, obviously our body's made up of millions of cells. And in the center of each cell, um, we have uh, little structures we call chromosomes that contain our uh, DNA or our genetic material. And <clears throat> All of our um, genes come in pairs, um, meaning that we inherit one from our mom and uh, one from our dad. So, um, again, have um, two copies of, well, most genes, I guess, in our body. <clears throat> and um, to for somebody to present with Huntington's disease, they would have... it. It only takes a change in one copy of that gene. So we say that this... Uh, that, Huntington's disease is inherited in an autosomal dominant fashion, sort of like that it just takes, if you have two copies of the gene, the changed copy sort of dominates over the normal working copy of, of the gene. So an individual with Huntington's disease has one changed copy of the gene and one normal working copy of the gene. And um, in the Huntington's disease gene, um, there is a region of um, repeating uh, kind of chemical word. Our entire genetic code, our DNA, is made up of just four chemicals that we use the letters A, T, G, and C to represent those four chemicals. And we um, read our genetic code in little groups of three or sort of almost like little three-letter uh, words. And one such word is C-A-G. And that particular um, uh, sequence, that CAG word, uh, codes for an amino acid called glutamine. And um, all of us in our Huntington's disease gene have a repeating sequence of these CAGs, CAGs, CAGs over and over. And the usual or normal number of these repeats is sort of in the range of 10 to 26 of these um, CAG repeats. So um, you could test any individual um, looking at their Huntington disease gene. You could test me and I would have 
two numbers associated with that gene because I have two copies of the gene. So if you tested me, I might have um, 17 repeats on one copy of the gene and perhaps 25 repeats on the other one. But because both those numbers are, um, are 26 or lower, uh, you would tell me uh, after that genetic test result that I was not at risk in any way for uh, Huntington disease. Does that make sense? It does. It does okay. make sense. So for individuals, when the Huntington disease gene was first found, we realized that all individuals who were tested had 40 or greater of those uh, CAG repeats. So uh, that then says that the... Um, the the mutation that would cause or the change in the gene that causes Huntington disease would be having an expansion of those CAG numbers into the 40 or greater range. And um, in genetics, uh, we use a term uh, penetrance to say how likely is it if I inherit a change in a gene, will I actually show signs of that particular uh, condition in my lifetime? And with for genetic conditions that can vary widely. It can be very low penetrance, like 30%, right up to fully penetrant, like 100%. And for individuals who have 40 or greater repeats, we say that that gene change is fully penetrant or all individuals who have 40 or greater repeats will at some time uh, in their lifespan present with symptoms of Huntington's. And uh, however, as Dr. Um, Sukorski um, indicated, at what age they will actually present, uh, we don't know. Uh, but it, it, we will say that they will present with some symptoms of Huntington's at some point in their life. Uh, over time, we learned more about the gene and realized that there was another repeat range, 36 to 39 repeats. And for these individuals, we consider this what we call a reduced penetrance range. And so there are some individuals um, with uh, repeat sizes in that 36 to 39 range who do present with Huntington's and they can present even at a very typical age of onset and um, very typical progression of symptoms. However, there are other individuals who have been examined, you know, at 85 years of age and do not have any neurological signs or any other types of signs of Huntington disease. So we say that this people with, um, repeat sizes in this 36 to 39 reduced penetrant range may or may not present the symptoms in their in their lifetime and there's one more range from you say what what about those numbers 27 to 35 and we call that an intermediate allele size and so far there hasn't been anyone um, anywhere in the world described uh, with symptoms of Huntington's with repeat sizes in that 27 to 35 repeat range. However, it seems to be that um, when we go to um, pass on that gene to our children, because it's greater than that 26 range, there is a chance that it could increase in size from generation to generation. And so although um, the individual that is being tested, if they're found to have an intermediate allele size, they are not at risk for presenting with Huntington's. Um, there is a potential risk of that expanding um, into a range for future generations that could place them at risk. Now, does that make sense? It does. Now, the thing that, to get clarification on that, though, is if a patient comes in, gets the test, finds that out that they're in that 27 to 35 range, 
is there a chance that they could potentially expand into that 36 and above range or will they forever be in that 27 to 35 range? Yes, like you, whatever you were, you're born with your repeat size. So if, if you were tested at, at birth and at age 50 and at age 90, you would expect to get the same test result. Okay. Is, did you have anything to add about that, uh, doctor? Yeah, no, I, I agree. So it doesn't expand in the person. It expands in either the, the eggs or the sperm into the next generation. So say, as Linda was saying, so if you have, if a person say has 34 repeats, they will never get HD, but their children may have 36 or 37 repeats. And then their children, their grandchildren may have 39, 40 repeats. So we all have repeating sequences in a lot of our genes. No one understands why we have these repeating sequences, uh, but over time in some individuals, for reasons that we don't understand, these repeating sequences in the DNA tend to get larger from generation to generation, but this is multiple generations. Like somebody who has say 34 repeats would not have a child with Huntington's disease in 40 or greater. So they increase a little bit at a time, right? So, yeah. so we don't understand, but there's many neurological disorders that actually are caused by this expansion of repeating sequences. Can you give Another me a few genes. examples? Um, so there's a type of... Um, uh, for example, Fragile X syndrome. It's a syndrome that causes um, children, boys to be born with, um, uh, with uh, cognitive problems. And the mother would carry, um, would be fine generally, but then it's also a repeating sequence, but in a different gene on the X chromosome, and then it will expand in the next generation. So th there's quite a few disorders that are inherited in exactly the same way as Huntington's is. Okay. Um, now, just just to make clarification here, and I, I, I hate to be this guy, and I just want to make sure that I'm understanding it. Um, the passing of the genetic, uh, the increased genetics, uh, repeating genetic, um, there's a 50-50 chance of that, correct? Right. So as I was mentioning before, that we have two copies of the gene. An individual with Huntington disease has one changed copy, you know, one carrying the increased CAG repeat size. And on the other copy of the gene, they would have a normal working copy. Um, and every time we go to have a child, um, we pass on you know, um, either the uh, working copy of the gene or the changed copy of the gene. So that's where the 50-50 comes from. For all of us, when women produce eggs or men's sperm, we're passing on half our genetic material. We don't pass on both copies. One copy comes from the mother, one copy from the father. Does that make sense? It does. I just wanted to make sure that was yeah. clarified because I just want to make sure that when my listeners are listening, they understand that it could be one or the, it's a 50-50 and it's not all the way. Um, one area when people come in to uh, see yourself, Linda, or yourself, doctor, uh, would be uh, 
A, if they're showing symptoms, they would get the diagnostic testing for Huntington's. Um, uh, doctor, can you just take me through the process of the diagnostic testing, and then I'll get Linda to take me through the yeah. uh, predictive testing that someone who knows a family member who has Huntington's might want to uh, find out if they are carrying the repetitive gene as well. So, doctor, if you can talk about the diagnostic, and Linda, if you can talk about the predictive, that'd be greatly appreciated before the next set of questions. Right. So if an individual comes to see me and I feel that they are showing, say one of their parents has HD, we know they have HD, I see the individual and clinically I feel they are showing symptoms of HD, then I or any neurologist can order the genetic test for HD to confirm the diagnosis. So in that case, it is confirming what we suspect clinically um, and so the test, it is a routine test done by uh, our molecular genetic laboratories in Alberta. Um, and like I said, any neurologist uh, can order to confirm the diagnosis. Um, at the same time, we would do other tests, as I mentioned already, to make sure that there's no other medical problems that could be contributing to the, to the um, symptoms. Now, just, just to make sure I understand here, um, you, you said at the beginning of your statement there that if the parents have a, have or there was a diagnosis of, in their parents of HD, for those who might not show those symptoms, would it be the same process? Would it be if their parents aren't, uh, don't, haven't been diagnosed with HD, would it be the same process as if someone with parents who had shown HD? Uh, pretty much. So there are people who, for example, are adopted, who don't know their family history or estranged from their parents. So, you know, HD does have a certain set of uh, abnormalities when we examine an individual. And I only mentioned the chorea, but there are other abnormalities, such as the eye movements may become slowed. Uh, they may have uh, symptoms of another symptom or sign called dystonia, where their, their arms may develop abnormal postures. Uh, they may have gait abnormalities. Uh, so the Clinical features are uh, would have to be consistent with HD to order for the neurologist to be triggered to order the test. So even if, if there is no family history, we can still order the test quite readily if we feel the symptoms are consistent. Um, the other issue uh, is that sometimes there is no family history because this is the first individual within the family that gets Huntington's. So for example, if the parent has 36 repeats and has no symptoms, but the child, the ch adult child then has 40 repeats, they would have symptoms. So this is called a, a new change in the genetic material or de novo event where you know, each expansion, as, as Linda and I both mentioned, occurs gradually over time. So there may not be a history of Huntington's in the family because it has to start with one person, right? But once that change occurs and that person has 40 repeats, then each of that person's children is at 50% risk of inheriting the HD mutation 
from the individual. Okay, you actually just took the next question out of my mouth, so I thank you very much for explaining that. Um, Linda, about the predictive testing, though, this is a, it, it's a challenging test because uh, for some people, it's, they want to know about the, their chances of uh, having the disease. So can you talk me through how the predictive testing works, Linda? Sure, Chris. So, um, just to say that um, that uh, the process is in place to really support an individual who, as you said, who has a family history of Huntington disease and who um, thinks that they may wish to know their status with regards to the gene. And the reason that they might want to know can vary whether that's for, um, you know, financial planning, retirement planning, um, family planning, any of those issues, um, that there is sort of a process in place. And first to say that the individual is um, the boss in that process in the sense that um, it's really their decision in the end and all the players um, in the process are there to support that individual and hopefully to help them be sure that that's information that they uh, truly wish at this time. There, um, the, in 1994, when um, the gene was first available, first, um, sorry, the, we, the gene was sort of found in 1993 and testing sort of set up in 94, there was an uh, international um, committee uh, comprising representatives from like the World Federation of Neurology as well as the International Huntington's Association that established some um, guidelines with regards to um, how predictive testing uh, should take place. And um, so the, the actual process does vary a little bit from center to center across the country and probably around the world. But um, in some centers, it is that um, an individual has um, a visit first with a genetic counselor who would um, ensure that the individual has a good understanding of um, Huntington disease itself as well as the gene as we, as we described it. And um, what the implications of different test results would mean for that person. And also just to discuss with that individual what their um, rationale for proceeding with testing is at that time and whether having this information uh, would uh, really um, provide the kind of information that they're uh, looking for at, at that time. And I also want to say that um, really um, only about um, I believe 20% or one in five people who are at 50% risk of um, inheriting the HD gene change from one of their parents actually opts to uh, pursue predictive testing. Um, and so uh, this, the second visit in, in our center is with a psychiatrist who again is um, just there to um, help the individual reflect on, again, their reasons for, um, for testing at this time and to see if there's any current concerns for that individual about stressors in their lives or if they currently 
have concerns for depression, et cetera, the psychiatrist may offer to work with that individual um, before they proceed for predictive testing. But again, it, that person's there to support, um, support the individual. And then on another visit, um, that individual is, um, the person proceeding through predictive testing ha- undergoes a physical exam. And as Dr. Sukorski suggested, there are some very um, early indicators of Huntington disease. And um, the neurologist like Dr. Sikorsky or in some centers a geneticist would conduct um, a neurological exam, a targeted one, looking for these early indicators of Huntington disease. And um, then uh, usually at a fourth appointment, an individual would receive their genetic test results if that, they, that's what they wish to do. And again, the, the rate at which an individual proceeds through that process is really, you know, up to them in the sense that some people want to go quite quickly and others want to take some time between each appointment. And at any point in time, that individual can decide that um, they don't want to know their their results at this time, and that's fine with us. It's really about supporting that individual and helping them make the best decision for themselves. And Dr. Sukorsky and I can attest that there has been times where individuals have actually scheduled an appointment to re- receive their results, show up to receive those results, and then walk away um, from that appointment that day, saying they'll be back in touch if if and when they want to know those, you know, want to know their results. Some people come back in a few weeks, some in a few months, and I think Dr. Sikorsky and I, when we had worked more closely together, have one person that their results have been waiting in the lab for over 15 years now, so. Um, and just to just uh, make sure that people know, you don't know the results either until they are comfortable, the, the person comes back in and says they are comfortable hearing those results. The doctors do not know. It is opened at the exact same time with both you and the person looking at those results, correct? Um, now, uh, that, can, that could vary from center to center. Yeah. That would vary from center uh, to center across the, the country, but in in um, in the center I work, that is how um, we proceed. That the results come to us in a sealed envelope. But I do know that in other centers, sometimes the physician does um, know the test results prior to meeting with the with the individual. Okay. I would not want that responsibility yeah. or to know that information. I, I do uh, prefer that we learn the test results at the same time as the, the individual. Yeah. yeah. So, so this is the process in Alberta and both, and it, it is consistent across the province. So predictive testing is only done at the two major centers, Edmonton and Calgary, and we have similar processes. Um, we feel very comfortable that the person is supported and really has thought about whether they want to have this information. You know, genetics is very interesting now because we have the ability to predict a person's future. And uh, whether it's due to, uh, whether it's breast cancer testing, you know, the Angelina Jolie gene where people can find out whether they're at risk for breast, for different types of cancers because it's not just breast cancer, uh, whether they're at risk for a whole long list of disorders now. Um, and it has to be done carefully and with thought and making sure that the person understands the implications and wants that information. 
So that's why predictive testing is restricted to uh, the genetic centers uh, across Canada. And um, I think it is very important for people to have thought about why they want this information and how they're going to use it. Now, I, I spoke to uh, a, a woman who's going to be on our show uh, after your episode airs who went through the predictive testing. And then I spoke to another lady who also decided not to go through the predictive testing. And they both said the same thing. I just want to uh, make sure that uh, this is true. And I, I'm assuming it's true, but I want to make sure I get it from yourself, Linda, and yourself, doctor. Um, there can be discrimination against uh that information being known, uh, whether it be insurance, uh, whether it be medical or a job, knowing the fact that you have those repeaters that you are potentially, uh, not potentially, that if you do have more than 40, you are going to get Huntington's, you could be discriminated against insurance where it could be higher, you could be refused of getting insurance. Is that true? Well, um, we the way we do it in Alberta is that uh, we only give the result to the individual directly. We don't send a letter to the family doctor unless the individual specifically asks us okay. to. Uh, we give the information to that individual. It doesn't go on to NetCare. It doesn't go on to Connect Care. Um, we feel that it is private. Um, now, that's not the case in other centers. And um, I know that in other provinces, that's not always the case. I, I think in Alberta, Alberta, we, we have developed what we think is a very good system for doing this type of testing. Uh, but in other centers or other provinces, um, the information does get out, in, I think. Now, insurance companies, correct me if I'm wrong, Linda, but uh, we do have a regulation in Canada where insurance companies cannot ask for that information directly. Um, if you do have a family history, they can ask about the family history and you have to disclose that, but they don't have access to the genetic information directly. Linda, is that correct? Yeah, so uh, exactly what Dr. Sikorsky said, and I think it's that though, um, based on the family history alone, that an insurance company can either uh, deny you access to insurance or, as you suggested, Chris, um, uh, charge quite prohibitive um, premiums for individuals to have um, either life and or disability insurance. And um, again, that there was a, a an, um, an act passed a few years ago about um, the insurance companies not being able to ask for those genetic test results. They can certainly, just based on what you report as your family history, um, either deny you the insurance or, or you know, um, charge you quite high premiums. And However, what some people are worried about is that, um, so if... Um, one of my parents happened to have Huntington disease, and I had not yet opted to um, had, have genetic testing. If my ch adult children were to go out and ask for insurance, and they asked about my health, they would say, well, um, you know, my mother's well at this time, and um, they may have, you know, be able to access um, insurance quite readily. However, once I've had um, a genetic uh, test and I know that I'm. If I were to learn, I was predisposed to Huntington disease. 
uh, and my children know that, then when you're applying for insurance, you have to, um, you know, fully disclose what you know about your family. Otherwise, you're, you know, it's your insurance yeah. Um, it's sort of fraudulent, you know, if you right. didn't disclose everything. So sometimes no, that's where the discrimination comes in, not necessarily for the um, yeah. unaffected if, individual at that time. If they ask, right. If you if they don't ask, you don't have to tell. But if they ask, you have to tell your family history. Okay, no, understandable. And and just so for those listening, uh, the predictive testing uh, is not done on anyone younger than 18, correct? Yes, we do not do predictive testing because we feel that it is the individual's right to decide for themselves whether or not they want the test. And, and most, most teenagers don't really want to know. Um, I mean, you're, you're invincible, right, when you're a teenager. <laughs> uh, so they don't really want to know. Um, some Very occasionally we have had teenagers that are say 17 or close to turning 18 that really have thought about it and with appropriate um, uh, sort of counseling and we would definitely get a psychiatric uh, input in that uh, you know I think you can make a case for uh, mature teenagers uh, but generally uh, when we've seen teenagers and talked to them they really don't want to know it's their patients pressuring them into knowing and in that situation, you can imagine if one child tests positive and the other tests negative, what kind of repercussion that could have to the family dynamics, right? So, so generally, we do not test anybody below the age of majority. Now, if a child is showing symptoms, then that's diagnostic testing, and that's different. So we can order testing to confirm a diagnosis in a, in a child. One thing I would just like to come back to with predictive testing that hasn't been mentioned yet, and that's survivor guilt. So while we support the person in the event that they become, find out that they are positive, we also want to support the rest of the family if they are negative. uh, Because, you know, when you're giving a genetic test result, a predictive test result, you're not just influencing that individual, you're influencing the whole family. Because you can imagine in the family, if some of the children test positive, some of the children test negative, how that changes the interaction between the siblings. Uh, we want to deal with, we don't want, you know, the parents, the parent to feel guilty to deal with the parental guilt of passing on a disorder. So, you know, it is a very complex issue, predictive testing, and there's a lot of issues to deal with. Now, uh, with that survivor's guilt, uh, there are organizations out in Alberta and across Canada and even around the world who help uh, patients who do have uh, Huntington's, especially the Huntington Society of Canada. Uh, Linda or even yourself, doctor, um, do you guys suggest that anyone who gets these results contact uh, those support groups as well or are you do you sort of just educate them enough and then hope that they do it themselves oh no we have a i think that uh we have an excellent relationship with the wonderful people that work in the um, resource centers, both um, northern and southern Alberta resource centers, 
for Huntington disease. And in fact, um, when an individual is referred to our clinic for prenatal uh, testing in the first letter that says you've been referred and the, the letter that they're provided that outlines the, 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 process, the sorry, predictive testing process, uh, even at that time, we suggest uh, the individual connecting with uh, the staff at the the social workers or staff at the uh, resource centers. And um, yes, they can be a great deal, uh, you know, a great source of support for uh, for individuals even as they go through the process. Now, yeah. oh, we recommend every all family members to contact the Huntington Society of Canada um, because I think it has a lot of value for families, like I mentioned, for those people that are, because the whole family is affected by this diagnosis. Um, there's also special uh, websites for uh, young people dealing with parents with Huntington's. Um, there's a lot of good resources both in Canada and the U.S. and the um, uh, and Europe. Uh, a lot of chat groups, uh, supports, um, websites. Now... <sighs> We know that Huntington is a progressive disease. Uh, currently, there is no treatment and uh, there's no cure, I should say. There's no diagnosis or uh, vaccine for it as there shouldn't, as there wouldn't be because it's a vaccine and not a uh, treatment. Uh, doctor, I know that you are, I'm just going to make sure I get this correct here. Uh, you are working on testing compounds that may have the ability to slow down the disease's progression, correct? Yes. Yeah, so let's talk about research now. Yes. Uh, there is a lot of research happening in HD. So first of all, we have a number of good treatments for patients who have symptoms of HD. So we can we have medications that can control the chorea. We can have have medications that can control the um, uh, the depression and anxiety. Some people do get irritability. We have medications for that, and we also work uh, both in Edmonton and Calgary with psychiatrists very closely to help with counseling, help dealing with all those disorders. So I wouldn't want anybody to think that we don't have treatments for people affected with Huntington's. We do. And I do apologize for the wording yeah. that I no, did no, choose. No, no, no. That's why I just wanted to um, clarify. To but now let's move to research. So uh, there are several um, international research consortiums that are looking for cures for Huntington's. Uh, the first is the Huntington Study Group. Uh, which has been uh, active since 1980, which is um, an international group where we have, which both Ed Edmonton and Calgary are part of, as well as other set major centers across Canada. And we have been studying um, a variety of compounds to see whether we can slow down progression of Huntington's. This includes things like vitamin E, creatine, um, coenzyme Q, a variety of naturopathic treatments that have been promoted, as well as medications. Uh, we've been studying drugs that uh, decrease infl inflammation in the brain. And those studies are ongoing. And the Huntington Study Group also has a website with good information and a list of all the trials that are on uh, 
going. The other major group that supports research is, is called CHDI, uh, which stands for Cure Huntington's Disease Initiative. And that is a group that funds a lot of research in um, um, internationally as well. And it is composed of basic researchers that are looking at animal models uh, of Huntington's um, as well as clinical trials. Um, so the CHDI is funding a study called Enroll HD, which is a gigantic worldwide database of everyone who uh, is affected with Huntington's or is at risk of Huntington's or has a family member with Huntington's, where we collect clinical information as well as biological samples, DNA, other samples, to look for uh, markers of Huntington's and also to provide researchers a big database um, of samples to do research on. So that's called Enroll HD. It is a very active, um, large worldwide research consortium. And so, for example, if I wanted to study something specifically in Huntington's, I could approach Enroll HD and say, can you send me samples from patients with such and such symptoms because I want to take a closer look at it. So that's a big database. Um, the other research uh, we're doing uh at the, uh, at the U of A and U of C, uh, which is uh, our local research project, which was funded by Brain Canada and the Huntington Society of Canada, to look at compounds that may be low in the blood and brains of people with Huntington's uh, to see if it can be used as what we call a biomarker, so a good marker of how the condition is progressing. And that's with Dr. Simonetta Scipioni here at the U of A, uh, where we're looking at certain at certain fatty compounds in the in the brain and blood called GM1. Um, the third major research project, which again is a worldwide project, is to look for a specific genetic treatment for Huntington's. And um, it, we talk, Linda talked a lot about the DNA. And just to remind everybody that DNA is then made into RNA and then is made into protein, right? And it is the protein, the Huntington's protein, which is too large and is toxic to the brain cells that causes the symptoms. So if we could stop the, the, the expanded Huntington gene from making the protein, which is too large and doesn't function properly, you still have one normal Huntington's gene that can make normal protein and things can carry on quite normally, right? Yeah. So what the genetic therapy is looking at is whether we can stop the RNA from making the protein. So the DNA makes the RNA. And then if we, if we like um, degrade the RNA or block the RNA from making protein, the bad protein, then we can stop the nerve cells from deteriorating, right? So the good Huntington's gene carries on, the bad Huntington's gene is blocked from making the toxic protein. So that's a specific type of genetic therapy called an antisense oligonucleotide. 
So the anti ASO, let's call it ASO. Yeah, so ASO, please, okay. The DNA still makes the RNA, but the ASO blocks the RNA, so the protein isn't made anymore. So the toxic protein isn't made. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that's really neat. So this is what the current genetic technologies are allowing companies to do. So there are several different companies now that have made different types of ASOs. So right now we have research going on in people who have very mild symptoms are just starting to get these symptoms and we are injecting into the spinal canal. So it's like a lumbar puncture, a spinal tap. We're doing a spinal tap and we are injecting this gene therapy, this GASO, uh, into the fluid that bathes the brain and spinal cord. And what we hope the ASO is doing is blocking the RNA from making the protein. So if the protein isn't made, the cells aren't going to deteriorate and it can slow the symptoms of Huntington's. So if we can start it before people get symptoms, maybe we'll stop them from getting symptoms. If they already have symptoms, maybe we can stop them from getting worse or even maybe reversing, making them a little bit better. We don't know. This is very, very exciting research. And every day it seems, uh, I would assume that there's new discoveries of how the genes progress. Um, and I don't want to put you on the spot here because it's going to, it's going to sound like a bad question, but I got to ask it. Do you see a potential cure, not like tomorrow, but in the future? Yes, absolutely. So these new gene therapy, we don't know yet if this will work, if it'll cause any side effects. And so it's still very much in early research. And I don't want people's hopes to get up that if somebody has symptoms now, I'm not sure that we'll be able to treat them effectively. But I certainly think for those people who don't have symptoms yet, or people with HD's children, that we would have a treatment, specific treatment, to prevent Huntington's disease. Um, I, I really do. I I uh, I think it is just such a such a time with so much promise, and it's it's not only Huntington's; it's other genetic disorders uh, where there is a dominant gene with. Uh, that's, that sort of works in a similar fashion to Huntington's, uh, that there is real promise. Um, there's a condition called spinal muscular atrophy, uh, which is also a genetic disorder, which um, they have. It's not the same treatment with ASO, but it's another type of genetic therapy where they're getting results. And I, I think um, in the next, I don't know, 10, 20 years, this should really... Um, uh, really come about. Um, I, I think it's amazing when you think about it, because I went, when I was a student, we didn't even know where the gene was, let alone what it was doing. And here, I'm now using a genetic therapy to potentially treat HD. Do you, um, when you... <laughs> One of the, uh, a daughter that I spoke to whose father had HD said that 
she wants to help out. She wants to be able to potentially help find a cure for that, uh, for HD. How do people get involved? You, you talked about that enroll HD. Is that the first step that they would have to potentially go to help find a cure to use their potential, uh, yeah. I, I hate to use the word body, but body for yeah. science? Yeah. Well, enroll HD, we're certainly... Uh, looking for participants. And if you go to the Huntington Society of Canada website, I believe they have a listing of all the centers across Canada that are participating and which studies they're participating in. So um, I think the best way is to contact Huntington Society Canada to find out where the closest center is, uh, to talk to your neurologist or your geneticist or the local centers, the local universities, uh, because these studies are going on across Canada. Um, and uh, there's always new studies coming out too right now. Uh, so we're happy to talk to anyone who would like to participate and, and point them in the right direction. Awesome. Um Linda, doctor, I, I, the last question I'll ask you both before we wrap things up here is, is there anything I missed? Is there anything that we should uh, tell our, uh, my listeners about HD, about what you both do that we missed? No, I, well, from my point of view, I think that was great, Chris. Thank you. Awesome. And thank you for taking an interest in this. No, hey, uh, it, it, it sort of, and I hate to use this word, but it fell in my lap. And uh, as I've done research and I've contacted the Huntington Society, they got me in contact with both you and uh, Linda. So it's been a pleasure uh, speaking to you. But Linda, what about yourself? Well, I, I don't know that we have enough time to go in, into it, but I think that, uh, you know, uh, just to say that I think there is a very, um, emotional and psychological toll um, on individuals who are, you know, um, members of Huntington disease families, perhaps, and um, for people considering the predictive testing uh, process. And to say that there uh, is quite a wide range of um, outcomes for individuals when they receive their, re their results. And um, yeah, I don't know. I just, I, I don't think that perhaps I emphasize some of that uh, when, when we were talking about predictive uh, testing, what, you know, a big decision that can be for, for people and kind of the range of emotions that people have um, after receiving their test results. And uh, not sure that that's what we want to get into now, but I feel that perhaps I, uh, you know, undersold that or didn't talk about that part of the um, no, and, you know, process. And, and Linda, it, I, I understand, uh, uh, like I said, I spoke to someone who went through the predictive uh, testing process and they said that it was overwhelming. Uh, their results came back and they were, if I'm not mistaken, they were under 36, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, okay. Don't quote me on that. But she said it does take a toll on you. And I can imagine that it takes a toll on anyone going through that process, correct? I would say yes. <laughs> and I, I guess that uh, that's why the process is there is to help prepare people. Um, but um, it is true that once you kind of receive your result, you can't unknow your status, right? You know, once you know it, you know it. And uh, it's a big decision about whether to, to proceed with that kind of uh, testing. But I'm sure then if you've talked to individuals that have gone through the process, um, they're the real experts here. They're the people who have who've experienced the process and can talk uh, to that better than either Dr. Sugorski or I. 
No, understand. But yeah. thank you very much for that, Linda. Yeah. No, thank you, Chris. Uh, I will finish. I'll leave it at that. I want to thank you both for doing this. Much appreciate it. Um, and I appreciate uh, the insight you've given me on this, uh, uh, on HD and how it uh, affects uh, and how the symptoms and uh, the testing and then also the research. So I want to thank you both for doing this and sitting down. I know we are a small little podcast, but I hope that people will listen to this and get some insight on HD and the struggles that people are going through and also the potential uh, research that will come, well, the research that's coming about on this as well. So thank you both. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Bye. Bye. And once again, I want to thank our guests for coming in, sitting down and telling their story. Please visit HuntingtonSociety.ca. While there, please feel free to reach out to your local chapter, get involved. But if you can, please donate. Your donation can help families across Canada. The Cross Border Interview Podcast was produced by Miranda Brown and Associates Incorporated. And once again, I'm your host, Christopher Brown. We will be back tomorrow with another great episode of the Cross Border Interviews Hunting. Awareness Week.